Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, how the COVID crisis has hit women hard. The true extent of our job market crisis has been revealed with newly released figures showing out of the 11,000 people who lost their jobs in the past three months, 90% are women. So why are billions being poured into jobs for men? The jobs that have been lost are actually predominantly women's jobs and the jobs that we're trying to stimulate are actually predominantly men's jobs. But New Zealand has women at the top. Just because we have women in leadership positions doesn't mean that things are going to automatically change because that's sort of not how it works. So what's being done about it? But I haven't yet seen a plan that is targeted to women. And could it all backfire? I don't think it can be overstated actually how uh, this could be a turning point, but back in the other direction. I'm the kaifakahaere, or the overall manager, for the Motueka Family Service Centre, which is a health and social service based here in the Motueka district, Monday to Friday, 9 to 4.30ish. Lisa Lawrence is also president of the National Council of Women, and she works with families in Motueka at the top of the South Island. It's a horticulture and tourism hub, population around 8,000. It likes to call itself a gateway to Abel Tasman National Park. And every day in this little town, Lisa sees families struggling. Our number of people in this community that are now dependent on the state is is far bigger than what I've seen in my time. So I do think that it's a call to action for our government to start um, showing us how they're going to respond differently and start investing in a sustainable way in the provinces and in what were previously sales and hospo staff. These are industries that are female-dominated. Oh, absolutely. And that's here and where part of the vulnerability that we're seeing is being expressed is in these part-time swing jobs. So they they are, according to the needs of the community in terms of its economy base, here it happens to be tourism and our incoming people. And when there are no people coming in, then we don't need as many hospital workers. We don't need as many hotel cleaners and front-of-house staff. And so the stress, therefore, flows through to their economic position, through the stress that their family feel. We have some families that are suddenly separating um, and that can be the discovery that the person they thought they were with, their relationship's very different under the constraints of the lockdowns that we've experienced. And so they're reconsidering how they have their family relationships. So when we all went into lockdown that first time in late March, in the work that you do, could you sort of see this coming? Absolutely. It was a an unfortunate um, consequence was, you know, seeing on the horizon the impacts for families and the impacts for women around our, um, our vulnerable um, employment sectors that need tourist dollar and that need flow through of people to sort of be able to be viable. And, you know, unfortunately here at the top of the south, there's a massive investment in Airbnbs um, and all the cleaning and support staff and the maintenance staff that go with that. There's a massive investment in incoming tourists be in uh, cruise ships coming in 
and we're just simply not having that same um, buoyancy. We're in a retracting, if not stagnant, economy now, and we just simply don't have enough money for our families to be economically stable now. Most of our families are experiencing huge economic deprivation that wouldn't be expected in a normal, quiet winter in sunny Motueka. Um, we've got more food parcels that we, and we link in with the local food banks than we've had in, in I don't know how many, in the last five years that I've been here. So the same story here is in the big centres where women are bearing the brunt. People calling the city mission for help include foreigners who have been stranded in New Zealand since the pandemic hit, students, families who have breadwinners out of work and overwhelmingly women. Something like 80% if not more of the people that um, seek assistance are female, mums, aunties, grandmothers. Are there any jobs at all around there for women? If they're prepared to change industries, which obviously most women and most people in survival mode are, however, just because a person or a sector or a group of people are ready to change and be more open to different you know, non-traditional gender stereotyped roles doesn't mean those particular sectors are more open, you know, particularly our male-dominated industries. I think the question actually lies with them, are, are they more open to having a more uh, female-based workforce than perhaps what they've had in the past? And I think that's been the challenge in watching the government, a challenge for me in watching our government be so behind all their, what they aptly call shovel-ready projects already gives a gendered lens on what they're willing to refund or newly fund to support our provincial economies. And that's worrying that that was already their default position. Housing, urban development and transport are some of the areas set for fast-track development as part of the government's package of infrastructure investments announced today. Minister for Infrastructure Shane Jones says the projects are expected to create more than 20,000 jobs. A total of $3 billion has been put towards the shovel-ready projects. We're trying to stimulate construction, which is sort of 70-80% men, and um, what we're losing is, is uh, you know, hospitality jobs, which is, I think, 60-70% women. All this money is being poured into infrastructure, into construction, where there are very few women. And I suppose they're saying there are apprenticeships and we're opening up to women, but this is them needing jobs now. And there is a suggestion from the Equal Employment Opportunities Commissioner, Dr Karanina Sumio, that there hasn't been a plan targeted to women you know, we've got women in policy, we've got women researchers, so we've got women in cabinet. There is no excuse for women to be to be left behind at this point in time. All of the policies and fantastic ideas of our government needed to have a gender analysis over them before policy was actually enacted. And that was the, the hugely missing part of deciding what would go forward and what wouldn't and doing that critical analysis. And I support um, the position that Dr Karanina has taken around where that's just so evidently lacking. And it was foreseeable that that would have been a requirement. We know that they're very concentrated in the retail sector, not the hospitality sector. And those are patterns that we see overseas as well. But also, um, you know, a lot of the majority of people who work part-time are women, working around the children and in other commitments. So they've been quite vulnerable um, to, to the crisis. 
had they done some nuanced analysis of where are our most vulnerable um, occupations and how they will need to be redeployed and in what place that they could have been better supported by government decisions. There's a safety that we get as a community and as a society that when the leadership is female in terms of gender, that therefore the structure, the systems and the thinking are inclusive of female as a gender. And I think that that's a safety net that actually um, creates a whole lot of comfort that isn't founded in reality. The thinking and the priorities of the system that those female leaders are in, it's still hugely gendered towards the normative being male, the normative being heterosexual. And that's the part that hasn't yet changed. We need a whole of systems change and a whole of systems approach to that change before we're going to get some traction on gender issues. That will be why we still have gender pay gaps. That's why we still have ethnic pay gaps that are far more damaging, um, that aren't yet picked up as important. And yet you and I both know that they are. So today I want to talk to you about the she session. That's right. In the US, this crisis has a new label. While the economy is in a recession, women are finding themselves in a she-session. Unemployment has risen more acutely for American women than men, with an even bleaker picture for women of color. Whether women who are privileged enough to work from home have been losing productivity, while men have become more productive because of childcare, house care activities. The COVID-19 crisis has highlighted the consequences of gender and racial inequities in the workplace. That's what makes it different to previous recessions. The last one in 2008 was called a man session. Kiwi Bank economist Mary Jo Vergara has been looking into the history of it all. Women have historically fared well in times of crisis. You know, you talk about the GFC, the financial sector was the hardest hit with redundancies everywhere. And given that women are, aren't represented or they don't usually go into the finance sector, the um, hit to their employment was relatively softer than it was for men. During the Second World War, if we go back that far, many women actually headed to the factories to fill in for men who had gone off for war. So we actually saw the female labor force grow by around 30%, and that's huge. That's around 48,000 women, when typically the female labor force only grows by around 5,000 in four years. Another one is that uh, during the recovery period following the Rogernomic reforms in the 80s, um, again, female labour was in demand then. You know, economic recovery was tentative, so employers sought a sort of casual part-time labour force, um, and that's where women were offering. So did you see this coming? I mean, you know, those staggering figures that 10,000 out of the 11,000 who lost their jobs over that lockdown period were women. Yeah, so it is a shocking number. That's 90% of all those people who have dropped out of paid employment. But, you know, there's a lot of noise around that 90% figure. Um, lockdown made it difficult for people to conduct the survey, for people to even declare themselves unemployed. It was a little sticky but even if you did adjust for, you know, lockdown-induced data anomalies, I imagine that number would still be 60-70%. Can you comment on policy, Mary Jo? I mean, it seems as if the government just didn't really take any notice or was too busy. Well, I think this crisis provides an awesome opportunity to sort of review the gender composition of our labour market. We've lost a lot of jobs in the service sector, which is mostly women, 
um, and we're creating a lot of jobs in the in, in the construction industry, which is mostly men. So this government's 1.6 billion trade and apprenticeship training program that they put forward in the May budget, I think it provides a great opportunity to encourage women into this profession. And some women have been encouraged, but compared with the thousands out of work, not a lot. I called Warwick Quinn from the Building Construction Industry Training Organisation, and that represents about 70% of the entire industry. And yes, the number of women in trades training has jumped in the last couple of years, but they still make up less than 4% of those taking up trades. The government's new focus on trades is making a difference. Just in the last two months, 139 women have signed up for apprenticeships or other trades training, compared with 59 in the same window last year. Still small compared with the number of men, 3,467 in the last two months against 1,214 last year. This training program is sort of a long-term solution to the problem we're seeing now. It's not really feasible to take a cafe worker and make her a tradie instantly. This is where fiscal policy right now steps in. You know, that wage subsidy no doubt has helped many women stay employed. The service sector probably were the main recipients of the wage subsidy scheme and given that many workers are women, many of them have kept their jobs. So we need more of that to continue to allow them to stay employed. Service sector um, fiscal policy would really help women stay employed and not um, see this 90% figure again come out later on the year. So that's the argument for a more targeted support of the industries where women have lost their jobs. And we can't ignore the fact that the big spend on infrastructure means more bridges, roads and houses. But it's just not that simple. It just seemed really kind of obvious from the get-go that COVID was going to, you know, exacerbate existing inequalities, whether that be gender or racial. Michelle Duff is a national correspondent for Stuff. She's been writing about the impact of COVID-19 on women, but she doesn't like to call it a she session. Yeah, you know, I don't love words that are extremely gendered like that because actually what it is, is a recession that is impacting on everyone. And I think possibly we've just been used to in the past just only looking at things through you know a very myopic view of just kind of viewing things in terms of how they impact men and women are somewhat of an afterthought whereas you know I think what we're seeing and hearing now is that women need to be centered in any policy because actually it's a holistic view of how it impacts all of society, not just one portion. Those jobless numbers that came out, that really brought it to a head, and now people are saying, well, you have to question those figures, but it's still it's still disproportionately higher. Absolutely is. And, I mean, I think we can see with every new announcement that there are impending redundancies. It's yesterday there was a, a story that there are going to be job cuts at, at Internal Affairs in the Passports Division, Now, that's 79 jobs, and a large majority of those are women because a lot of those government jobs, and particularly the ones that are lower paid, are women's jobs. So if you look at countries like Hawaii, where the state of Maui has actually introduced a feminist response to COVID-19, one of their recommendations is to try and avoid the losses of those government jobs or 
to try and redirect those workers into other parts of the economy that can uh, are helping in the pandemic response, just recognising that you know a lot of the people that will lose that work are women. So other countries are tackling it. They are much more tailored in their response in terms of recognising that women are being harder hit. When you started looking into it, what did you find out about how... The, the government is tackling this? Well, I mean, I would say that the government isn't tackling this from a, using a gender lens at all, and there have been opportunities for it to do so. There's a group of women and, and non-binary people who began this group, the Gender Justice Collective. That group was, was started because Julianne Genter asked the government to place a gender lens over the budget which basically means to to analyse how any of the decisions of where the money's going to land will impact on women. And the Treasury refused to do that. And so this group of women, one of whom is Jennifer Curtin, a public policy analyst at the University of Auckland, got together and actually said this isn't good enough and we really need to push for this to happen. So this is the group who have done this survey in a somewhat revolutionary manner, the first one really that has asked women what they want this election and also, you know, what would make a real impact to their lives. This is the You Choose survey. Yeah, this is the You Choose survey. They've they've pretty much just asked women and non-binary respondents what kind of things impact their lives and what policies would make them easier. 76% of, of people said that childcare is holding them back. So basically they're not being able to reach their career goals or even work as as much as they'd like. And when we think about childcare, I mean, especially during COVID, you know, where people are working from home, research has shown that women end up doing 50% more of the childcare that men do just because they're women and they're there and they just pick up their work. 94% of them said that they always organise their children's care. So... Something needs to change in order for us not to regress, especially during this pandemic. But why, I think people would be astounded that the government isn't tackling this. I mean, we have women in leadership roles. I guess the thing to remember here is that just because we have women in leadership positions doesn't mean that things are going to automatically change because that's sort of not how it works. We're working within a system that is inherently imbalanced. And yes, it is good having that representation and the more of it that we can have, the better. But it's not just going to magically change because there's there's a woman at the top. We need to rethink the whole way that the system is organised. I mean, Marilyn Waring has been speaking about this for a long, long time, about measuring and you know giving weight to unpaid labour, all the unpaid labour that primarily women do that allows the economy to exist that is part of the economy but it's so invisible we don't value it and that's why we end up with a COVID response which pumps billions and billions of dollars into industries that benefit primarily men. I I can't understand why you know that would be considered to be a, a solution in this in this crisis it's not. There has been research to show that actually investing in social infrastructure, which you know is things like paying early childhood educators more money and accounting for unpaid caring work and more money for caregivers and more money into the health system, that actually does ultimately help the economy. 
you know, agenda, looking at things through a gender lens, it's not something that nice that you should do. You know, you shouldn't sort of just throw us a bone and, and, and say, oh, yeah, we've we've kind of considered this. I was, um, you know, I've been sort of trawling around looking at um, this over the last few days. And one economist said that all the progress that has been made for women in work, women in pay over the last 10 years was pretty much wiped out in eight weeks. And I I suppose this is part of what Jennifer Curtin says. This is something that we can't just ignore because for generations, feminists have been working towards equality and it sort of seemed in a way that maybe we were finally getting somewhere. But, you know, I don't think it can be overstated, actually, how uh, this could be a turning point, but back in the other direction, or it could be the impetus for the change that we sorely need. So it could be a major setback for women, or it could be the point in time that the government and policymakers realise that something different has to be done. I mean, I think when we have historically seen it come to these points in the fight for gender equality, often this is the, the time of tension and the time where th- these things have to be actually addressed, you know. They've got to be thrashed out. These inequalities have been with us, and now we're just kind of seeing them laid bare at the time of a pandemic. Could what has happened to women in this period, during this crisis, sway the way they vote? Yeah, well... The recently published results from the election study, the 2017 one, found that uh, the women's vote really counts. Certainly with what has happened, the number of women who are becoming jobless, I would think that this would be something that political parties would really have to pay some attention to. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Blair Stagpole and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Lisa Lawrence, Michelle Duff and Mary Jo Vergara. Kakite anō.